0: This week we we snuck away. (laughs) Debbie mentioned we went out to the Black Canyon of the Gunnison National Park, and if you haven't ever been there, I recommend it. Highly recommend it. It's a little more than a five hour drive from here in Castle Rock, but uh, we actually spent the night, two nights right there in the National Park in the South Rim Campground, and it just so happens that Black Canyon is is one of those protected dark sky areas. and it just so happened that the first night of our stay was a new moon. So there was no moonlight to, to filter through. And we slept without the rain fly. There was no wind. We were just enjoying the stars as we fell asleep that night. I tell you what, we serve an amazing God. And I think it's, um, is it Psalm 8 uh, that says, man, when I, when I look up into the heavens... And I see the, the, the stars, you know, what is man? This is the question that kind of comes up in the psalmist's heart. What is man that you are mindful of me, of us? And in the midst of all this, the God who breathes, literally breathes stars into existence. Um, he's the God who, who wants to be with us. And I hope that doesn't just kind of sound cliche. But there is a God who has created all things and yet wants to be with you. With me, personally. Um, And this, you know, we're starting this new sermon series, The Coming of the Comforter. And this is something that, uh, that I hope we're reminded of, that there's a God who didn't just create the world for us, but he wanted communion with us. And when that communion was disrupted because of sin, when there was a separation between us and Him, He, uh, he, he instructed the children of Israel and he said, You know what? Let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, right? So, God, who, is, who created us uh, to, to have a perfect existence, because of sin, he, uh, he was separated from us, but wanted to bridge that gap, and wanted to create this sanctuary so He could be among us, but He wasn't content with that, right? Eventually, he himself tabernacled with us. John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, that of the only begotten of the Son. And if that wasn't good enough, when Jesus was about to depart, he said, you know what? I'm going to send you another helper, another comforter. Like he wasn't just content to dwell among us. He wasn't just content to actually become incarnate and be with us. He would send his Holy Spirit to actually dwell within us. And this is a verse that our friend Maida, you know, in our Friday night Bible study, she's quoted very often from Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. And, and just in that passage, Paul is talking about how, man, the mystery of the gospel is such, and it's the glory of it is the climax of it is that Christ would be in you. That is the hope of glory is anybody else excited about i don't know maybe okay can i get a witness (laughs) man and so when we're talking about the coming of the comforter we're talking about god's ultimate longing to actually not just be around us not just be near us to but to dwell within us that's god's ultimate longing the coming of the comforter we started it last sabbath we'll continue it tonight and, you know, just as a way of introduction here, I wonder, you know, God longs for this. I wonder how, how much do we long for it? How, how much do we long for the coming of the Holy Spirit, Christ in us, the hope of glory? Go with me to Acts chapter 8. We're going to start here just kind of as a way of introduction, uh, because there was someone here in Acts chapter 8 who really wanted the Holy Spirit, but he wanted it in a bad way. Okay? <laughs> And, um, and I'm, I'm meaning that term literally not like a, like a, you know, in a not good way. Okay. Acts chapter eight, if you're with me, Acts chapter eight, I want us to kind of temper our desire for the Holy spirit and realize that there's a right way to desire the Holy spirit in and in a not so right way. We're going to talk a little bit about what it is, um, to make ourselves ready for the spirit. So go, go there. Acts chapter eight. We'll look at uh, verse 19 and 20. When you're there, go ahead and say, I'm there. All right, we got a few. Acts chapter 8, verse 19 and 20. In here, by the time you get to Acts chapter 8, the gospel is starting to trickle out of Jerusalem, okay? Uh, it had, The work of the gospel, the work of the apostles was centered in Jerusalem, but by the time Acts chapter 8 comes on board, the gospel is now being sent out. Why? Because... Christians were being persecuted in Jerusalem and they had to get out. Um, One of those that went, his name was Philip. He's later known as Philip the Evangelist. He ends up preaching amongst a Samaritan group of people. Okay, So he's preaching the gospel to Samaritans. And um, the Samaritans believe the word. They are changed by the word. And when Peter and John... When Peter and John come to see the believers, so they travel from Jerusalem, they go to Samaria. When they come to see the believers just to check, is this legit? You know, (laughs) did Samaritans actually become part of the family of God? They go and pray for the Samaritans and they pray that they would receive the Holy Spirit. Now, in this town, there was a witness to this. His name was uh, Simon and he's known as Simon the Sorcerer. And when he witnesses Peter and John praying for the believers and they receive the Holy Spirit, he gets he, he gets this longing in his heart. I must have that gift, that power. Let's take a look here. In verse, uh, let's go to verse 18. I'm sorry, I'll start in verse 17. So this is Acts chapter 8, verse 17. The Bible says, "Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit." Which, by the way, you remember it was Peter and John the two disciples that went from Jerusalem all the way to check out, did, did this really happen? I don't know if you remember John's history with Samaritans. Do you remember John's history with Samaritans? Yeah, yeah. He was a son of thunder and said, Lord, shall we call down thunder upon the Samaritan village because they didn't accept you? you know? And here, John converted now. He is, he's actually praying for the fire of the Holy Spirit to come upon these believers. Really just an awesome divine irony right there. And in verse 18, the Bible says, and when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles hands, the Holy spirit was given. What did he do? According to verse, uh, according to verse 18, what did he do? He offered them money. Okay. He offered them money. Verse 19 saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy spirit. Did Simon want the Holy Spirit? Yes or no? Yeah, yeah. he, He had a desire. He had a longing. But there was not, there were some things about this longing that were not particularly appropriate. Verse 20. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the, what are the next three words there? That the gift of God could be purchased with money. Peter was clarifying something for Simon. He was clarifying something. When Simon saw the power of the Holy Spirit, he wanted that power too. But Peter is, is tempering that and saying, no, 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 no. This is the gift of God. Do you pay for a gift when you receive it? Yes or no? No, it's a gift, right? I mean, you, you look at this phrase in a more familiar verse. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean there's almost this parallel between salvation and the spirit this is God's gift the holy spirit just like salvation the holy spirit is not a a force or a power to be purchased but a promise to be received it's Christ in us the hope of glory right? The holy spirit then is not a mere commodity he is the mighty comforter and that's something that the sorcerer needed to get straight simon didn't quite understand it so just like every promise in scripture the promise of the spirit like we read about last week you know uh, jesus calls the holy spirit the promise of the father right so just like every other promise in scripture the promise of the spirit has conditions that make us ready to receive Him. It's not about obtaining all the money that we can, all uh, all the material goods that we can lay down for a down payment for the Holy Spirit. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit is the down payment for us. (laughs) He, He is the down payment of our eternal inheritance. And so the question we want to ask today is, not how can I earn the Spirit, not how can I gain entitlement to the Spirit, you know, because if we truly long for the Holy Spirit, we want to not purchase the Spirit. We want to receive the spirit. Do we see the distinction there today? Yeah? Can, can we be clear on that? So rather than asking how can I earn the Spirit or gain entitlement to Him, we're going to ask this question, What conditions make me ready to receive God's promise? Right? If this is the promise of the Spirit, what conditions or what qualities make me ready? So last week we talked about some historical conditions. Jesus had to be glorified and had to depart in order for the Comforter to come. Well, on a personal level, if that's the historical level, what about the personal level? We started kind of dipping into that as we talked about Calvary coming before Pentecost and stuff. But today we're going to start answering that question a little bit more in detail. What are the personal conditions then? What do I need in my heart to actually make room to receive the Holy Spirit? Because in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus is talking about the promise, he says wait for the promise of the Spirit. Is that what, what does wait mean? Does that mean like kind of twiddle my thumbs and count one, two, three, you know, that kind of thing? No, there are certain things in my heart that I can do to make room for the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. So today we're going to start making a list. Um, we're going to identify three qualities, and this is not an exhaustive list because uh, we're going to uh, take next week to start actually exploring some more qualities. But today, three personal conditions, more next week. And what, uh, not just asking what are those conditions, but what can I actually do to cultivate those conditions in my life, okay? So, here we go. We're going to go to the first one. Go with me. You're still in Acts. Let's go to Acts chapter 2 now. Acts chapter 2. This is the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was fully poured out, right? The enthronement of Jesus in heaven was signalized on earth by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, We're looking at personal conditions, and the first personal condition is the condition of repentance. Repentance. All right, Acts chapter 2, verse 36, when you're there, say amen. All right, Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Peter is preaching, preaching for 10 minutes, and he ends up with a a harvest of 3,000 souls who want to be baptized. And, And here, what I want us to look at is kind of near the end when he's making the appeal, verse 36 The Bible says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter has just kind of unfolded to this, this large group of onlookers, like, what in the world is going on? Peter has just explained to them that 50 days ago, the person that you crucified was in fact the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been risen. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And he is both Lord and Christ. Verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, wh- what shall we do? Okay, their their eyes are open. They realize, you mean that person that we allowed the religious leaders and the Roman officials to, to take? And that was the christ how how do we rectify that how do we make that right in verse 38 then peter said to them repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of jesus christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the holy spirit I'll read verse 39 too because this, this is an awesome promise. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Did you hear it? The condition for receiving the gift? Peter's first appeal he says, repent. Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. I tell you what, condition number one, the reason why we're putting this first on the list is because really this is the primary condition. The other conditions that we look at later on and then also next week will really have no, no weight, no, no value if this first base, so to speak, isn't covered repentance repentance so what repentance what, what is repentance really and maybe we can ask the question what is repentance really not you know what is repentance you know in my mind um, the visual that comes to mind is the prodigal son and just that moment when he's in the uh, in the, the the pen of the pigs and the bible says he came to his senses and the very thought was i need to go home that's the story that kind of comes to it. repentance is this recognition, awareness, what I'm in and where I should go. I need to go home. I need to go home. So repentance is not just the acknowledgement of sin. It's not even just sorrow for the consequences of sin. I mean, it's one thing to, to be sorry that you got caught, so to speak hitting your sister, you know, your little sibling or whatever. But it's, it's, it's a total different thing to actually feel sorrow for doing that in the first place. You know, it's not, repentance isn't just a change of mind, although there is that, that uh, meaning in the original Greek word of a, a change of thought, a change of mind. I would say this, one author says it like this, repentance is a radical, moral turn of the whole person from sin and to God. Did you hear that? I'll read it again. It's a radical moral turn of the whole person from sin and to God. In other words, it's deep. It's a convicted turning away from sin. It's a radical departure from who we are and what we've done. It's it's so radical that it forsakes sin, it it wants to put sin and self to death, which is why Peter puts it hand in hand with being baptized, right? Repent, let every one of you be baptized. Baptized was a, a physical signal of an internal death, right? Baptism was the enactment of a death burial and eventual resurrection to a newness of life. Peter's mind has it hand in hand with baptism. That reenactment of the story of Jesus becomes our story. And it's only in this context of repentance. It's only in this context of death to self, baptism, submersion of the old and resurrection to the new that Peter assures us of this promise, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, let every one of you be baptized and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's this classic book by uh, an Adventist author named Leroy Froome called The Coming of the Comforter. And on pages 173 to 174, he says it like this. Uh, let's see if we got this. Okay. It says, To be filled involves first being emptied. Right? <clears throat> to be filled involves first being emptied. It's, it's that law of exclusion. When you're filling up a, a bottle of water uh, at, the, at, the, at the kitchen sink or wherever your water filter is and stuff, you that bottle of water is is not it might look empty but it's actually full of air All right and then when you fill it with water it's being emptied okay so to be filled involves first being emptied two diverse things cannot at one and the same time occupy the same place self and the holy spirit watch where he goes with this self and the holy spirit cannot occupy the same heart throne Notice how he talks about the heart. In each heart, there is a cross and a throne. If Jesus is on the throne, self is on the cross. You follow that? I don't know if there's another part to this. Okay, yeah. So in each heart, there is a cross and a throne. If Jesus is on the throne, self is on the cross. Self and the spirit can't occupy the same throne. And this is what repentance is about. Repentance is saying, I will get off the throne and I will let Jesus sit there. I mean, the, uh, the Apostle Paul, he talks about this in many, many places. We could probably go to a lot of places like Romans chapter 6, 7, 8. We go to Galatians chapter 5. He talks about it in terms of the spirit and the flesh, things like that. But when you crucify the flesh with all its lusts, then you can walk in the spirit. So then the question is, how do you cultivate repentance? How do you cultivate this, this emptying of self where self gets off the throne and lets Jesus sit there? How do you cultivate that? What does it require? Well, in this sermon that Peter is preaching to those gathered there on Pentecost, I mean, what led them to want to repent? Two things. One, they recognized what sin was. They recognized what sin did. That it crucified the living Savior. So it requires a recognition of what sin is and does, but more than that, it requires a recognition of what the Savior has done to save us. I, I love how Romans chapter 2, verse 4 puts it, Paul kind of puts a, a cause and effect. He helps us connect some dots. Or do you despise the riches of His goodness? Forbearance. Long-suffering. Knowing that the goodness of God does what? The goodness of God leads you To repentance. So if you're asking yourself, man, I I, want to experience repentance. I want to cultivate this more. I want to allow myself to be emptied so that I can be filled with the Spirit. The question is, how then do I repent? Is repentance something I just like kind of muster up? And I say, I will repent. Three, two, one, go. No. Apparently, repentance is in itself a gift. I think it's Acts chapter 5 that uh, uh, the Apostle Peter, he's preaching another sermon. He says that Jesus came to give repentance to Israel. Repentance is in itself a gift. And how do we experience it? Well, it's it's experienced as we know and see the goodness of God. That goodness leads us to repentance. That's where sorrow from sin comes from. Remember, Calvary must come before Pentecost and maybe you've been taking an opportunity that the take home challenge last week was go to Calvary each day this week and I don't know maybe you've done it for me personally I've I've just taken the story from Matthew I'm sorry Mark chapter 15 I've just kind of been reading the story of the cross and just looking at each scene and kind of putting myself there um, this morning or I'm sorry yesterday morning I started looking at Luke chapter 23 as well and Calvary must come before Pentecost. Allow Jesus to be lifted up before your heart and mind. In John 12, verse 32, Jesus promises, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men unto me. Calvary must come before Pentecost. It's the repentant heart that asks Jesus to take the throne of the heart. You know, maybe I'll just kind of slip in a, a plug here for this evening's virtual communion service. Uh, don't, don't get hung up with you know, not having made the appropriate preparations and stuff. Uh, really, the preparation is the preparation of the heart. That's the most significant thing. And I want to invite you to our virtual communion this evening. It's going to be a chance to tangibly express your desire to let self get off the throne so that Jesus can take the heart the throne. To tangibly express your desire to empty your heart of self. To yield and let Jesus supply the vacuum, so to speak, with His Holy Spirit. So As we go to the cross, not just tonight, but as we go to the cross each day, make that a personal habit. Go to the cross each day, turning away from sin, turning away toward the Savior, and realize that as you experience that sense of repentance, you're actually making room for the Holy Spirit to fill you. Okay, so condition number one. What's that, uh, you know, we're looking through personal conditions. We've got repentance. As we experience repentance, you may not necessarily feel great about yourself, but guess what? Your sorrow for sin is actually making room for the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Your sorrow for sin is actually allowing the Comforter to come and to come and fill. All right, so we're looking at uh, the next condition, and the next one is faith. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3. You're in Acts. Go with me to Galatians now. Galatians chapter 3. It's in the New Testament. You go Acts, Romans, then you've got the Corinthians. It's right after 2 Corinthians. Galatians chapter 3. And if you're there, say Amen. All right. Galatians chapter 3. I mean, Galatians is another book uh, that is... I mean, it's an epistle that maybe we ought to dive into for a month and a half or so. But really, kind of the ultimate theme here is the idea of faith. What it is to truly trust in Jesus, not in yourself. To trust that He has done everything for our salvation is doing everything for our salvation. Will do everything for our our salvation. We, in and of ourselves, we cannot make ourselves complete. Galatians chapter 3, he's talking about this idea of justification by faith and and how Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. But go with me to verse 13 and 14. 13 and 14. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. The Bible says this, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Man, I tell you what, the Abbas has a way of just explaining the gospel in a sentence. And it's a gospel in a nutshell. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Well, in what way? For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Literally, when Jesus hung there, suspended between heaven and earth, he became the curse of the law. In another place, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now notice in verse 14, here's where we're headed because we're talking about conditions for the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through what means? Through faith through faith, right? We, we, just like we receive salvation through faith, we receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. As we trust in God, we are actually making ourselves open to the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Now, what's really interesting is that as you kind of track the Apostle Paul's teachings about the Holy Spirit, as you go through the book of Acts and kind of see how they were interacting with the disciples, not just Paul, but, um, you know, Peter and John, and as they were experiencing more and more interaction with people uh, coming to conversion, there became a growing expectation in the New Testament that being filled with the Spirit was concurrent with belief in Jesus. That when you actually hear the gospel... And you accept it, you receive it, you realize that that there's nothing I can do to save myself, that Jesus is the one who is crucified, resurrected, and glorified so that I could experience the same. When people came to believe in the gospel, they were expected to experience the promised blessing. That's why Peter is saying, hey, repent, be baptized, let every one of you be baptized, and you will receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Actually, in Acts chapter 19, go with me to Acts chapter... Oh, no, 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 no. Let's go to Ephesians. I'm sorry. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. So this is the very next book. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Do we have this here? Oh, we do have this here. Okay, okay. I I actually got this from the Common English Bible, which I I just loved kind of the way it worded it. So let me read this here. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. The Bible says this. You too, talking to the Ephesian believers, you too heard the word of truth in Christ, which is the good news of your salvation. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit because you did what? Because you believed in Christ. So he's recounting the experience of the Ephesians. Do you remember the experience of the Ephesian believers? When when the Apostle Paul first came to Ephesus, he found a group of 12 disciples. It's, it's described in Acts chapter 19, verse 2. He finds this group of believers. There's 12 of them. And his very first conversation started out like this. Hi, my name is Paul. What's your name? No, it didn't start out like that. Actually, the way it started is, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you first believed? That's how the conversation started. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And their response was, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And then Paul starts reasoning with it. Well, then with what were you baptized? And he said, with John's baptism. Oh, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And he was pointing forward to Jesus who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so, so the Ephesians heard this word of truth. They heard of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That Lamb of God who would also send the Comforter and because of that, they were, they were sealed with the Holy Spirit because they believed in Christ. So what faith really is, you know, in the technical or specific sense, it's, it's trusting the gospel, right? Trusting that only Jesus saves, that only Jesus can be Jesus. We'll say that, okay? The word Jesus, or the name Jesus means Savior. Only Jesus can be Jesus. You are not Jesus, so let Jesus be Jesus, okay? In a technical sense, faith is trusting the gospel. In a general sense, we can say faith is leaning on God to provide, right? Leaning on, trusting on God, relying upon God. So faith is more than just an intellectual agreement. It's a reliance upon someone, that someone being Jesus. Actually, in, in Acts, I'm sorry, Acts, Romans, Romans chapter 4, I love how Paul uses Abraham just as an example of what faith really looks like. He says, Abraham did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. In Abraham's experience, faith meant this is God's promise. I will trust that he is able to perform it. Okay. It's not looking at circumstances and saying, ah, let's kind of doubt that promise. He didn't waver at the promise of God through unbelief. Instead, he looked at the promise and said, even though my circumstance says this, even though my body says this, I will look at the promise of God and rely upon that more than anything else. That is what faith is. It's leaning upon Jesus, leaning upon his word. So true faith isn't always going to be accompanied by signs and dramatic things. Huh? Can we recognize that? Just kind of be honest with that. True faith is not always to be accompanied by signs. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we walk by faith, not by sight. Right? Faith is not always something that is dramatic or, or a, 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 an ecstatic feeling. So we walk by faith and not by feeling. The practical implication is this that anytime we trust Jesus to be our Savior, anytime we trust Jesus to be true to His promise, we are actually opening up the heart to receive the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? It's really simple. So uh, condition number one, anytime we start to experience sorrow over sin, anytime we, we start to turn the heart and want Jesus to sit on the throne and not ourselves, we're opening up ourselves to the Holy Spirit. That's repentance. Anytime now faith, anytime we experience faith, anytime we look to Jesus as our Savior from sin, anytime we look to Jesus' word as more real than my experience, we're actually opening up our hearts to the Holy Spirit. Um, Another quote from another author, this guy, he was actually a a professor of mine at the seminary. He wrote a book called Adventism's Greatest Need, talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Actually, if you ever get a chance to take a look at this book, he goes through kind of a historical uh, progression of the church's development, how we needed the Holy Spirit all along. Anyways, really good stuff. But there is a chapter here, and he says this, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit... is given to us upon surrender of our lives to Christ, right? Just like Ephesians chapter 3. When you believed in Christ, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now notice this. And He, the Holy Spirit, comes into our lives every time we surrender. Not just once, but as many times as we yield to the love of Christ. So settle it in your mind that this is a work of faith. You follow his, his, his logic there? Anytime we trust Jesus to be our Savior, anytime we surrender and yield to the love of Christ, we are we are opening up our lives to the Spirit of Christ. So settle it in your mind. He says that this is a work of faith. You receive Him by faith, and every time you trust your Savior, He abides with you yet again. And I think this is really important, especially in a you know when there are uh, kind of strains of evangelical Christianity that says you need to have a certain kind of feeling before you know that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. That is not the case. Anytime you trust God, you are promised the Holy Spirit. Do you follow that? It can kind of lead to a dangerous trajectory where I must feel this way in order for me to be filled with the Holy Spirit. No, it will not always be accompanied by feeling. But, The promise of the Spirit is given when we believe. Right? Galatians chapter 3. What did it say? Going back to Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So if faith is a condition for receiving the Holy Spirit, how then do I cultivate more faith? (laughs) How then do I... Um, cultivate more trust. Romans chapter ten verse seventeen. This is something that I, I learned as a senior in high school when I was going to my Bible study group. This was one of the things that um, that just came up over and over again. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You want to know how to uh, increase your faith? Fill your mind with the word of God. Fill your mind with the, and I would say specifically the promises of God right? Because Abraham, uh, he, he took the promises of God for what they were. He said, what God has promised, he is also able to perform. Fill your mind with the promises of God. And whenever you choose to lean on those promises, whether it's a promise for salvation, whether it's a promise for healing, whether it's just a simple promise that he is with you wherever you go, whenever you choose to lean on his promises to save, to provide, to heal, to protect, to comfort, your heart is in condition to be filled with the spirit that 's exciting to me that's i mean it, this is this is not like aI a, must climb the highest mountain in order to experience this you know this is just simply trusting and your heart is ready to receive the spirit all right so we 've got repentance we 've got faith here 's one more condition, and then we 'll look at some more next week. One more condition. <clears throat> And that is obedience, obedience. This one kind of goes hand in hand with faith because faith really, in its genuine form, faith is always lived out. Yeah? Faith is always demonstrated in some sort of following after God. For Abraham, faith was trusting the promise that uh, you know, leaving the land of Ur, he, he'd be led to a land where, where God would bless him. For Abraham, trusting the promise that God would provide him an heir and not doing it his own way. Let's go to Acts chapter five. Acts chapter five, verse 32. This is where Paul I no, sorry, not Paul, Peter and John spell it out explicitly. Acts chapter five, verse 32. If you find it, say, "I beat you." Oh man. All right, here we go. Acts chapter five. Here Peter and John, they are um, brought before the, uh, the religious leaders of the Jews. They're being told not to preach in the name of Jesus. Not to put the blame on them for, for having crucified the Christ. And actually, I'll start in verse 29. Acts chapter five, twenty-nine to 32, the Bible says, But Peter, the other apostles, answered and said, yeah, we, we ought to obey God rather than men. I tell you what, this is just one of those life mottos that you just need to kind of write on your bathroom mirror. We ought to obey God rather than men. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance, there it is, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So even though he's preaching to these religious leaders who are completely resistant to the gospel, he's actually preaching the gospel to them right here. And in verse 32, notice this. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit... Whom God has given to who? To those who obey Him. The Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. Those who obey Him. Now, in the context of Acts chapter 5, obedience to God is contrasted with obedience to man, right? Verse 29, we must obey God rather than man. In fact, the particular Greek word here in Acts 5 for obey... It's found in verse 29 and also in verse 32. It's only found two other places in scripture. This is not the the common term for obey, which is very similar to the Hebrew term, which is listening and heeding instruction. This term is actually, it's it's a, uh, oh man, did I write this down? Okay, it involves being persuaded of what must come first. All right? it with, built into the word itself is this idea of priority or higher authority. In other words, to obey because I recognize who is giving the command. It's not just because of what's being said that I hear it, it's because who is saying it that I'm doing it. We must obey God rather than men. And this is not, this is not a slavish obedience, right? Psalm 40 verse 8, I love how that messianic prophecy says, I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. The testimony of that verse is that we delight like to do God's will when his law is in our heart. It's not a slavish obedience like, okay, I, I must obey God. No, it's because Peter recognizes I I cannot live if I don't do according to my conscience and conviction. I must obey God rather than man. This is not a slavish obedience, nor is this a partial obedience, right? I think a couple of weeks ago, Andy was telling us, or just kind of walking us through the story of Saul. Man, Saul's folly, he shows us the folly of partial obedience, right? To obey, Samuel says to Saul, to obey is better than to sacrifice. So this, what we're talking about, obeying God rather than men, the Holy Spirit being given to those who obey him, this is a conscientious, consecration to the God who is worthy of our utmost obedience. I think of that story in uh, the, the very first miracle of Jesus. He was at a wedding in Cana, and uh, the, the wedding kind of runs out of wine, and Mary uh, walks up to Jesus and wants Him to do something about it, and Mary eventually turns to the servants who are serving the guests of the wine and says, Whatever He says to you, do it. Yeah? That's the kind of obedience that we're talking about. When we prioritize pleasing God rather than man, whatever he says to me, I will do it. Whenever we prioritize that, whenever that priority plays out practically in our life decisions, in our daily behavior, guess what? We are opening up our hearts to the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Whenever we choose to obey God rather than man, whenever we choose to, to follow his lead rather than our own, we are actually opening up ourselves to the infilling of the holy spirit so the question is how then do i cultivate obedience we talked about cultivating repentance cultivating faith how do i cultivate obedience let me give you two answers one is a common sense answer in order to obey someone's will i have to actually know that will right in other words in order to do the word of god i must be a hearer of the word of god in order to do god's will i must be intentional about discovering it so if I'm serious about cultivating an obedient life, I must also take time to hear God's commands, to hear his instructions, especially as it contrasts against the ways and values of this world. So that's the common sense answer. If I want to cultivate obedience, well, take time to actually understand what he wants me to obey. Okay. But let me give you the relational answer. <clears throat> obedience that God wants is not just a a sense of duty and drudgery. Uh, For those of us who are parents, you know the joy of of, uh, your child actually following your instructions because they want to. Right? I mean, it's one thing for them to stomp their way out with the trash. Okay, I'll take the (laughs) trash. But it's another thing to hear, oh yeah, sure, I'll do that. You know, if, if, if you are um, married, you know the difference between a spouse who is doing it out of duty or, you know, following, you know, putting the dishes away because they don't want the, the reprimand or whatever. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, uh, <laughs> you know the difference between acts of love and acts of duty. Yeah. God doesn't want slavish obedience. I've said this already. So then how do I cultivate obedience that is genuine? You know, John 14 verse 15, I think is really key for us here. I love how the New Americans puts it. It says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I think other versions kind of put it as, if you love me, keep my commandments. Like, uh, if you love me, do this. <laughs> that kind of thing. But this is the reality. This is a description rather than a prescription. If you love me, this is just what's going to happen. You will keep my commandments, and so if we want to cultivate obedience, the question is not so much uh, what you know. The question is not so much how, how do I how do I obey better. It's how do I love him more. How do I love him more? If Jesus promises that we'll keep his commands when we love him, then I would submit that we need to feed our mind a steady diet of reasons to love God. (laughs) Feed your mind a steady diet of reasons to love God. I mean, we talked about getting into the Word. Well, look for reasons to love Him. (laughs) Look for the ways God has loved you. What does 1 John 4.19 say? We love because He first loved us give your give your mind a steady diet of the ways god is demonstrating his love for you and watch how love begets love and that love will keep his commandments if you're having difficulty obeying god maybe the real issue is you're having a a dearth of loving god and so dwell on his character dwell on his power Dwell on what he has done and will do. And watch how the love of God births love for him that is demonstrated through obedience. All right. Three simple conditions. Repentance, faith, and obedience. My, my simple appeal is um, if you want to receive the Comforter, if you want to receive the Holy Spirit, why not turn these three personal conditions into three daily petitions? Turn these conditions into petitions, prayer requests. God, give me repentance. God, give me faith. God, give me obedience, a love that truly obeys. Is there a particular condition, as you're looking, just reviewing at this list, is there a particular condition that resonates deeply with you today? You you kind of say, man, this is something that I'm, I'm not experiencing, or this is something that's foreign to me. Maybe there's a particular condition that resonates deeply with you. And I want to just tell you, God is inviting you right now to cultivate that very quality. God is inviting you to cultivate that condition in your life. Do you want to say yes to that invitation today? Yeah, why not? Why not? These are gifts He wants to give. Repentance, faith, and obedience. Go ahead. Say yes to the Lord. Maybe take some time later this afternoon To share with someone, you know what, this this is what I want to cultivate, or this is what I want to ask God to cultivate in me. Share that with somebody else. Why? Because sharing it actually deepens your sense of conviction about it and your commitment to it. The God of the universe wants to fill you with His Spirit today. (laughs) Just think about that. The God of the universe wants to fill you with His Spirit today. And if you just want to say yes to the Lord, say yes, I want to make my heart ready to receive your Spirit, just Would you raise your hand today and say, yeah, that's me. I want to receive the comforter. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to uh, just consider these, these passages of scripture, not from just an intellectual sense, but from a relational sense that you are actually inviting us to ready ourselves to receive this precious gift. Lord, there's nothing in us that deserves the indwelling of christ in us the hope of glory but you've promised him because you want this experience for us and so we just want to agree with you we want this for ourselves god whatever it is whatever these conditions that have become barriers in our lives i pray that you would overcome them that you would grant us repentance that you would grant us faith. He would grant us obedience. Thank you, Lord, for longing to do all of this and more because we pray in Jesus' name, let the family say, Amen.